This is Record Club, the podcast where people tell personal stories about how seminal albums impacted their lives. My name is Louise Burns. I'm a musician, producer, and your host. And on this show, you're going to hear stories in front of audiences from our Record Club nights. At these musical gatherings, we pick one classic album and invite regular people to share their tales of how that album intersected with their lives. You're not going to hear deep critiques or musical dissections, just honest stories from passionate music fans told live. For this episode of Record Club, we're telling stories soundtracked by a 21st century classic, a soundtrack that might be the most introspective and bittersweet dance album that any of us here at Record Club can think of. It's a nostalgic view of the past that will ring painfully true to any elder millennial diving headlong into adulthood, something that the artist behind this album deeply understood and continues to be obsessed with. Your Record Club album this week is LCD Sound System's Sound of Silver. Sound of Silver changed my life by catalyzing like a massive internal shift that altered my reality. At the start of the new millennium, with the idea of the hipster alive and kicking, indie rock was having its moment. Influential music blogs gave clout to bands that eventually found their way onto the click-wheel iPod of just about every 20-something. At the heart of the scene was a rebirth of the New York sound. It was a renaissance defined by up-and-coming bands like The Strokes, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, TV on the Radio, and Interpol. While most bands at the moment found their sound pining for a New York that no longer existed, a DJ and sound engineer by the name of James Murphy formed the iconoclastic LCD sound system, merging his nerdy record store influences into a blend of sweaty dance tracks with high-energy basement rock. You can't talk LCD sound system or frontman James Murphy without mentioning the breakthrough single Losing My Edge from the band's first album. Yeah, I'm losing my edge. It's a self-conscious confessional about his insecurities with irrelevance, subject matter that would carry over to Sound of Silver. Sound of Silver is a tightly woven album with nine lucid tracks that, at their best, expand on variations of the things we leave behind. Whether it's trading in idealisms for jadedness in Time to Get Away, away. your city growing unfamiliar with every passing day, New York, I love you. But you're bringing me down. Or reminiscing about faded friendships. Sound of Silver is a crystal ball with a vision of an aging Gen Xer working through the emotional complexities of getting too old for the party scene. One that Murphy was experiencing as a late bloomer when he recorded the album at 37 for indie rock kids half his age. Our first storyteller, Adrian Matei, was one of those kids. LCD Sound System helped her summon the courage to tell her high school crush how she really felt. How did that go? Well, I'll let her tell the story. I liked being 15. I'm absolutely luminously idealizing a youth that was just as dull and unflattering as anyone's, but I do believe that there was this really beautiful post-MySpace, pre-Instagram time when all you needed to have a good afternoon was to go down to the HMV on Robson and buy a CD. And I know I'm going to sound like John Cusack from High Fidelity when I say this, but back then you did not go to a music festival and listen to two songs each from 35 different bands. 
you got a fake ID just to go see Beirut at the Commodore, and you were wrapped and emotional, and when your mom came to pick you up afterwards, you said that it had been the best night of your life. That was 2007, one year before the movie Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist came out and co-opted the whole indie pop vibe. It was also the year that LCD Sound System released their album, Sound of Silver. Now, like a lot of people, I was really intense about bands in high school. I internalized the messages of the music of my youth and restructured them into personality guidelines. And a lot of my favorite bands, like Bright Eyes and Death Cab and Stars, they wrote songs about being vulnerable. And they sort of shared this interpretation of vulnerability as something soft and sad and sweet that needed your sympathy. But I thought LCD Sound System was different. There was nothing twee about them. Their earnestness was aggressive. They served up vulnerability wearing a pair of shit kicker boots, slapping one fist into an open palm. Admittedly, it was not from Sound of Silver, but my favorite LCD Sound System song, and the one that really characterized the whole band for me, was Losing My Edge, because in it, James Murphy addresses some seriously excruciating insecurities. That song came from the sense of failure he had after turning from this promising, musically precocious kid into this like irrelevant old guy who kind of hung around at the clubs and never had a hit and seemed to be going nowhere. And he felt like he was watching himself become this flattened background character in his own life story. And so he wrote this song articulating his sense of failure, and by doing so, he achieved success. From LCD Sound System, I extrapolated that the key to unleashing the power of honesty lay in not worrying about being cute or likable. Earnestness was not just important because it was touching. There was a transformative power in the ability to address embarrassing things about yourself head on. And when I was 15, I developed a crush on this boy two years older than me. His name was Max, and we were in the same art class. And he was quiet and shy, and he played the guitar, and we liked all the same bands, and I would wear extra mascara on the days that I had art class in hopes that I would be pretty enough for him to notice me, but he didn't notice me. And because I had this gaping need to be exceptional, I found his indifference threatening, and I took it as a challenge. I decided that I was gonna ask Max out. Now, I went to this insular little private school where everyone knew everyone else's business, and it was not like conventional practice for girls to ask guys out, especially guys two years older than them. But I didn't think it was like forbidden or anything. I mean, it made sense. Max was shy, and I don't have that problem. But all of my friends seemed to think that this was this crazy act of elective idiocy. They told me that guys like a chase for a reason, and that if Max liked me, I would already know. But I live by the rules of mid-2000s indie pop, and at age 15, I decided that the kind of person I was gonna be was the kind of person who could open their heart. And so one day after school, I burst into the art room where Max was drawing, and I said, hey, do you like Bright Eyes? And of course he said, yes, it was 2007. So I said, do you wanna go to the Bright Eyes concert with me? And he said, oh. And then he said, um. And then he said, sure. Max and I went to the concert, and it was fine. But afterwards, he didn't talk to me again. He did talk about me, though. Max must have told a couple of his friends that I was crazy about him, and they must have told everyone else in the entire school. Because the next week, I came into the unequivocal sensation of being the center of universal gossip. Everyone was talking about how I liked this guy, and he didn't like me, and I asked him out, and how weird he was, or I was. And I couldn't go up to everyone at school individually and grab them by the face and go, I believe in expressing my emotions earnestly. How dare you shame me? 
I couldn't do anything. And suddenly this narrative that I constructed for myself as this girl who wasn't afraid to show a little emotion and take a little initiative was replaced by this narrative of a girl who was just like embarrassingly obsessed with a guy who was humiliated by association. I felt myself become this flattened background character in a story that was kind of supposed to be about me. And I didn't like it. So I decided at age 15 that I was gonna do something that showed Max and everyone else in the school that just because I could make myself vulnerable didn't mean that I couldn't also be dangerous. I decided that the kind of person I was gonna be was the wrong person to fuck with. <laughs> so I took a page from James Murphy's book. Everyone was gonna talk about how weird and embarrassing I was, fine. I was gonna show them just how weird and embarrassing I could be. My school had this annual public speaking competition where everyone had to say a speech in front of their English class and the best ones were brought up to compete in front of the entire school. And you know, in high school, some people are good at drama and some people are good at rugby, but I was a cold-blooded murderer at this public speaking competition. I knew that I would be able to make it to that final round where for seven minutes I would have the undivided attention of the entire school. <laughs> and I did. And there I was, in front of everyone, presenting my speech, which was on self-discovery that year, and it was going well. And then I started to deviate a little bit. I just started describing this experience that I had just had. There'd been a guy, and I'd really liked him. And I'd asked him out, but maybe that had been too subtle. Maybe he still didn't understand the depth of my feelings for him. Maybe what I should do is tell him right now, in no uncertain terms, in front of absolutely everyone, just how obsessed with him I was. <laughs> at this point, I turned to look at where Max was sitting in the audience, and this radius of his friends around him were all like flustering and exchanging worried looks and grabbing at each other. In the middle, it was just him, and our eyes met, and he looked like he wanted to die. <laughs> but I didn't call out Max. Instead, I called out the name of this friend of mine who was this class clown who'd agreed beforehand to jump out of the audience and yell that he loved me too. But everyone knew that that had been about Max, and they knew what I had done, that I'd almost assassinated the poor guy by standing up and saying out loud what everyone had been whispering about me anyway, that I was a girl with a big, unrequited crush. Now, Max graduated shortly thereafter, and we never spoke again, but... If there's one last lesson we can learn from James Murphy, is that sometimes success comes weirdly late in life. This past December, three months ago, I got an OkCupid message from Max saying that he noticed that we were 90% compatible. <laughs> and I said I thought it was pretty stupid to let a web algorithm tell him what my teen intuition knew over a decade ago, <laughs> that maybe we would get along. But you know, we did get along. And the thing is, I think it's actually kind of courageous of Max to reach out to me after all that weird stuff that I put him through. And I also think it's kind of courageous that he came out here tonight to watch me talk about him in front of a room full of people, which must be a weird sensation, but at least it's nothing he hasn't dealt with before. <laughs> Sound of Silver might seem like an out-of-place album for a record club list. It's a bit newer and maybe a tiny bit more niche than Janet Jackson's Control or Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. But it's an album that's especially near and dear to one half of the creators of Record Club, Ken Soy. 
He joined me in studio to talk about how this album has changed for him since COVID. Hey, Ken, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Great. Ken, can you talk to me about why we chose this album? Yeah, absolutely. I think Record Club is about universal themes and themes that relate to everyone or can or try. And I think that despite the fact that LCD Sound System puts us in a time and place, the themes are still as relevant as they ever were. Songs like North American Scum, which was about the Bush years, seem quaint by comparison to the situation in the U.S. right now. It reflects so many concerns we still have today, and even more so in such a heavy period of time. In fact, it adds levity to the situation. It adds a lightness to how heavy the world is right now. That even as we process all these ideas of death and despair with the U.S. government and things like that, that we can still dance to it all. How does the way you listen to it change in light of COVID? Uh, the album makes me nostalgic for a past I had when I first listened to it in 2007, but it also makes me sad and nostalgic for the past I had a few months ago when I could go out and enjoy uh, a good time with my friends this way. A park hang is great, but there's nothing that beats jumping up and down with your friends. Mm-hmm. I feel that. Well, thanks for talking to me, Ken. Of course. My pleasure. James Murphy was a late bloomer, having started his musical career at 32. And even though he recorded this album at 37, you can hear songs about how he still doesn't feel ready for the attention he's getting. Comedian and actor Toby Hargrave can relate to that sentiment. He was still figuring everything out when he and his wife were trying for a baby. Thank you. I don't always feel like I fit in. Especially right now. (laughs) Um, I'm sure you're all beautiful, wonderful people. But I eat a lot of meat. Pigs are delicious. (laughs) I drove an F-150 Super Crew here tonight. (laughs) I, albeit many years ago, voted conservative. (laughs) I'm sorry. I have a lot of baggage. It took me a long time to figure things out. I guess this is a story overall about becoming an adult, which officially happened two years ago. (laughs) Because I did everything late. I wasn't until my mid to late 20s that I actually started pursuing my career. It was in my early 30s that I got married It was in my mid-thirties that I finally learned that pickles used to be cucumbers. (laughs) I had no idea. And my wife was like, well, what did you think they were? And I said, that's the whole point. I had never thought about that. 
once before in my entire life. Um, I've never sat there looking at a pickle thinking, what were you before this? No, they're salty and delicious. They grow on a pickle bush in the ocean. Go get them. It wasn't until my late 30s that I discovered LCD sound system. And that's when my whole life changed. Now, I'm going to stop far short of giving James Murphy credit for my life changing. He just happened to be along for the ride. <laughs> Two and a half years ago, my world took a left. And I had a baby girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a dad. <laughs> Which is pretty much why I look like this, because... I don't care anymore. There's <laughs> more on that later. <laughs> and even that took a long time. We couldn't get it right. It's like the story of my life. I just can't get shit right. We tried for seven years to have a baby. And we started like every other per couple does, probably just Let's pull the goalie, right? Shoot at the net, see what happens. And I'm an Oilers fan, so I couldn't hit shit. <laughs> and the net was, um, well, the net's good. Let's leave the net alone. <laughs> I really like the net. It's a good net. It's a tight, nice net. I, um, but... It wasn't happening. And all of our friends were having babies so easily. It was such an easy thing for them. Some were doing it accidentally. How the fuck do you do that? <laughs> so we got to a point where we said, well, I think we need some help. And so we called in another coach. That's a horrible analogy. Okay, so <laughs> we went and saw a professional. And nothing was really, we couldn't get it figured out. And we got to a point where we were thinking, well, we need to do something else. And we started looking at adoption. And adoption is like $15,000. I couldn't believe it was that much money. And in vitro, it was $10,000. And we had that. It was all we had, but we had it. And we're like, let's, fuck it. Let's try it. So we cashed everything out. And we, uh, we gave it a try. And we got all the pills and injections that you need. And we had to wait for Sarah's cycle to start. You start when her period comes. And so we just waited, and she was late. And it didn't matter, she was always fucking late. <laughs> and I'll never forget the day. Just waiting for her period to start. I was at home, and she was at work. That's how it normally goes. <laughs> Take your time with that one. <laughs> and I thought it was her calling, and I answered the call. I'll never forget it. This moment, it was quiet. So quiet. And this broken voice just said, I'm, I'm pregnant. And I said, holy fuck. <laughs> we just saved $10,000. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
still brings a tear to my eye. <laughs> my wife and I both wish that wasn't actually the first thing I said. <laughs> it was hard to get right. Being and, and watching my wife become a mom. Because here's the thing, guys, we will never, never understand what that means. We just won't understand the desire to, to be something. To say that my wife wanted to be a mom is disingenuous. It's, it's not, I can, don't have the words. The first three months were the most beautiful, awkward, wonderful, weird, weirdest thing I've ever been through. I remember her waking up every morning so excited and she'd roll over and put my hand on her tummy and say, look, honey, I think I'm showing. She was a beautiful pregnant woman. But every morning it was awkward because how do you tell her like that? That, that bump's been there for a while. <laughs> you, you don't. And I remember meeting my little girl and holding her. And it was strange. Because when she was born, out of all the babies I'd ever seen, she was my favorite for sure. Like, I'm pretty sure on that. But she still could have been an asshole. I was holding out a little bit, I think. But I'll never forget the moment that it hit. And I'd just given her a bath. And I realized that she could do anything. This is the one person in my life that can do anything, and I'll still love them. I used to describe the love I have for my wife as just learning how to control my hate. <laughs> a little too close to home for some of you. <laughs> but I remember holding my daughter, and I could hold her in my hand. Her butt would fit in my hand. I'd just given her a bath, and I picked her up, and her eyes were open, and she looked. And I, I, that was the first time I looked at her. Just there was this long moment, and I realized how much I loved her. And that's when everything made sense. And that was like that first moment where I fit. Where this is where I was supposed to be. And then she shit in my hand. Perfectly. Like she filled it up perfectly. And I pulled her up. I didn't even flinch. I just pulled. I pulled her up. And when I pulled her off, I swear to goodness, this little dairy queen kind of on the top. And I did what every dad does. I, I took a picture of it. So I could show to my wife and probably all of you at some point tonight. <laughs> so I was 40 years old when I finally became an adult. And there was a pretty f wonderful moment being able to sit down across from my mom. And say, you know, mom, I'm 40 years old. And for all the years that you've said I love you, I finally get what you meant. Thank you very much. Good night.
We can't get away from Sound of Silver without talking about the standout track, Someone Great, and without mentioning who that song is about. The track is a glittery tribute to a lost friend. Murphy has declined to mention who exactly the song is for, but it's assumed that Someone Great is about his late therapist, Dr. George Kamen, who he found out had passed away during the recording of the album. More importantly, Dr. Kamen helped him work through his paralyzing fear of failure. Murphy turned down a job writing for the hit TV show Seinfeld. Instead, he decided to pursue a career in music, but was petrified by the idea that he wouldn't be any good at it. It was only after overcoming this fear with the help of Dr. Kamen that Murphy would go on to record his first song. Without Dr. Kamen, LCD Sound System might not have existed, and for that, the entire album is dedicated to him. Our last speaker, Rachel Ricketts, is an anti-racism activist, a speaker, and a writer. She tells her story of losing someone great, someone that was foundational to her professional and personal growth. My mother had to starve herself to death. After two decades of battling multiple sclerosis, she was debilitated. She'd had enough. She was once the epitome of elegance, grace, a successful interior designer, hostess with the mostess, role model of a single mom, role model to me. But at the age of 65 years young, she was left with bones piercing through skin, nerve endings that screamed with agony just at the touch, and the sole ability to only control her eyes and mouth. She was entirely astute though and sassy as fuck, I must say. So she was trapped in her body. It was July when I got the call. I was on my way to Pemby Music Fest. And uh, she finally broke down. I can't do this anymore. It's time for me to go. And who was I to argue? From that point on, I did everything in my power to help my mom meet her final wish, which was to die. Assisted suicide wasn't legal at the time, so we knew we were on our own. And I'm an only child of a single mom, so this wasn't the first time. But it was definitely a different kind of experience. We were able to move her to a hospice, and we thought, yeah, we'll just like pump her full of drugs, <laughs> and she'll just kind of fall asleep, and that'll be it. No one tells you sometimes dying's fucking hard. If all these people out on the street were dying of fentanyl, and they didn't even want to die, why couldn't my mom? But she was in pain real pain, and her tolerance for opiates was sky high. So we were condemned to whispers behind closed doors, Google searches, how to kill your mom, don't, don't suggest it, it's really dark, and vacation plans to go to Mexico so I could pillage vet clinics for the right cocktails. In the end, the only option available that wouldn't land me in a prison cell was for her to starve and dehydrate herself to death. And over the next 10 days, I watched, I guarded, I bear witness as she slowly slipped from this world to the next. For my mom, death was freedom. It was her only ticket to respite, to solace, to flee a body that she was trapped in. After she died, I walked into the hospice room where her body was. 
and the light flickered in a way I hadn't seen. And I turned the light off and I turned around and the whole room was full of moonlight. I mean, it was lit up. And I knew she was there with me, albeit no longer in that body. My mom wasn't the only one who found freedom through death. In the months after she passed, shit got really dark, really heavy. I felt alone, scared, overwhelmed. And people think, oh, the weeks after someone dies, you know, that's, that's, that's the worst time. And everyone's different, but for me, it was three months, six months, nine months later, when everyone's world just continued on, everyone just kept walking around, and I didn't have a mom. What does that even mean? We can push death to the side. We can hide it. We can literally put things into caskets and bury it. But every single person in this room will die. <laughs> Sorry if that's a newsflash. <laughs> and before that, you will deal with death and with grief if you haven't already. So why aren't we talking about it? Why can't we look ourselves in the mirror and face the one fucking thing we know for sure? Other than taxes, but some people don't pay their taxes. So. <laughs> it's really just death. <laughs> I think these are conversations that we need to start having, that we need to start addressing. And the fact that death is painful, it's sad, it's muddy, it's ugly, it's noisy, but it can also be enlightening, peaceful, transcendent. You can find yourself. There are gifts in grief. And I'm by no means saying that just because you go through shitty times, you become this bigger, better, brighter, bolder person. Fuck no. I'm just saying when you find yourself at the bottom of the barrel, sometimes it's when you really find out who you are. I found my purpose which is helping other people through loss and grief and being an advocate for conversations around death and dying, loss and grief of all forms because we're not having those conversations. And by not having those conversations, we're making life a hell of a lot harder for the dying, those helping the dying and those in grief. My hope is that we can start to open up dialogue, have these conversations as uncomfortable as they may make us maybe start to shift our perspective around what death and dying is, because it truly is sacred. I know, I think death can be an honor. And without question, helping my mom die with love, peace, dignity, was and shall remain the biggest accomplishment of my life. And that's Record Club for this week, featuring LCD Sound System's Sound of Silver. Next week, we will take you through what some people have called the ultimate breakup album. It's a hazy folk rock reflection on betrayal and new romance. A masterpiece that proves there really is beauty in the breakdown of love. 
Your Record Club album for next week is Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. During a particularly deep piece of work, somebody said, I have this song stuck in my head. And I said, is it Fleetwood Mac? And they perked up and they made eye contact with me for like the first time in a very long time. And I was kicking myself for not going the full way and saying Fleetwood Mac dreams. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to carry that for the rest of my life for not doing that. Record Club is a Kelly and Kelly production. It is recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It is produced by Chris Kelly, Max Collins, Lauren Berkovich, Dave Shumka, and Jody Camilleri. Record Club is created and produced by Lizzie Carp and Ken Soy. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, spread the word about it, and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Louise Burns. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.